0: Welcome to ACE Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in as we elevate clinical endocrinology by taking deep dives into trends and topics that can help us improve our patient care and global health. Find the latest episodes on aace.com slash podcasts. And now let's meet the endocrine experts who will be talking with us today.
1: Welcome everybody to our first podcast. We're going to introduce ourselves. My name is David Lieb. I'm an endocrinologist at Eastern Virginia Medical School in Norfolk. I'm also our program director for our endocrinology fellowship, and I am the chair for the Education Oversight Committee for ACE. I'm joined by my partner, Vin. Vin?
0: Hey, Dave. Thanks for having me as your (laughs) co-host.
1: Yeah, right.
0: I'm Vin Tangprecha, uh, endocrinologist here at Emory and also the program director of the fellowship program. I was the former education chair, but now I'm the editor-in-chief of endocrine practice. So this is going to be fun, huh? I am very excited. We've
1: been talking about doing a podcast for a while. It was something that came up during your tenure as chair for the education committee. And I think that we both listen to a variety of different podcasts, endocrine podcasts, but also entertainment podcasts. And I listen to Conan O'Brien regularly and those sorts of things. And I always get so much out of them. I always enjoy listening to the interviews that folks do.
0: Yeah, I think podcasts are great, especially in today's world where you can get access to podcasts in your car and your phone, and you can listen at all times of day. And I think that hopefully what we'll do is make this a little light and have our listeners learn some endocrinology, talk about different topics that are happening today. So I think it's going to be well received, we hope
1: we hope so so all you listeners out there we want to hear feedback and certainly ideas for for episodes in the future so vin what did y'all do for thanksgiving we
0: ate outside (laughs) (laughs) Uh, we had visited my wife's family but we were outside all day it was very i got a lot of vitamin d i'll tell you that (laughs) vitamin d levels very good
1: my mother in law lives uh, a few hours south of us in North Carolina, and she came up and spent some time with us. And she's actually in the process of moving. So after Thanksgiving, my wife and my three boys went down to North Carolina to help her out. And I was here by myself. I managed to do okay. Usually I decompensate pretty quickly when Emily's out of town.
0: <laughs> Uber Eats?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of eating out, which is not quite as easy to do right now because of COVID. Fortunately, I was on call. So the fellows made sure that I was doing okay, that I was kind of surviving through those few days without them.
0: What's your go-to Uber Eats?
1: Oh, gosh, I don't know. There's a Panera in the neighborhood. Maybe the Panera. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not very picky. There's a Chipotle not too far away too, so I can go there.
0: Our kids are so used to ordering out now. And I I tell my daughter, look, if you can't order Dunkin' Donuts, Uber Eats. The cost of the product has to be more than delivery fee, okay?
1: (laughs) How are things in Atlanta with respect to COVID? Are y'all seeing an increase of consults in the hospital that are COVID-related?
0: It's been, I mean, steady, which is unfortunate. It's been steady up. Not really, it's not really gone down, but it's not gone up. It's just sort of as chronic level. So it is disappointing that it hasn't gone down as we'd all hope.
1: Yeah, yeah. I feel like Virginia has been pretty fortunate overall. But recently, I think like everywhere else, we're seeing an increase in numbers. I'm not so much sure in our hospital, it seems like it. I feel like we're doing more more COVID consults, getting a little bit of that feel that I had back in February, March, and April when things were really just starting up.
0: How's ACE Education treating you?
1: ACE Education is great. So we're doing all kinds of exciting things. And I think maybe one of the silver linings of COVID is that so much of our education is now virtual. So just this month, we had a fantastic endo-university product for our senior fellows, second and third year endocrinology fellows. It was amazing. I know you participated in it. What were your thoughts then? It was
0: great. great. The fellows were so engaged. I mean, it was so hard to keep up with all the chat questions that I was asking the speakers and our own fellows really enjoyed it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So did our fellows. I took up a challenge for a dance-off that hopefully everybody has had an opportunity to see either on Twitter or directly on TikTok, Endo Dave. So if you're interested... It's
0: on the internet now. You're never going to be able to race that.
1: <laughs> my friends from college were really excited. I guess they found it on Twitter from following me. And one of my friends sent an email to the rest of us and said, is nobody going to comment on this? Like somebody's got a- We have to start giving Dave a hard time. Wait till your Uh, department
0: chair sees that.
1: You know, I don't know if he's seen it or if he hasn't. We'll have
0: to email him.
1: I'm sure he would appreciate it. It's yet another one of my many talents, I think. I know. That I bring to our department.
0: I think you won the trophy.
1: (laughs) We're getting excited about Endocrine University that's coming up in February. So we're having our, our next EU for first year's. And there may be some more dancing associated with that one. So be on the lookout.
0: I hope so. I want to see some new moves from you.
1: It's been interesting putting it together. Our team, Geetha Gopalakrishnan and Matthew Levine, are co-chairs of our fellows education committee. And they've worked really hard to develop material that's virtual, but it's about a lot of hands-on type things. A lot of EU1 for the first year fellows is, is procedural based. So it's going to be really exciting to see how they approach that. We're also working on things for the annual meeting coming up in May and developing lots of great plenary sessions and meet the professors, meet the experts, all those sorts of sessions are are getting finalized now. I think people are going to be really excited. Certainly, I know COVID is going to be part of it. Some of the new technology and diabetes care will be part of it. Lots of great sessions in thyroid and adrenal, tuitary. everything is covered. The new ACE uh, lipid guidelines came out. I'm sure that we've all read those. They're, uh, they were mentioned in our cardiometabolic meeting that happened this past year mm-hmm. also. So I'm excited to hear more about those at the annual meeting also. What about the journals? How are things going with journals?
0: So we're really excited to have a new publisher starting January 1, Elsevier. One of the world's largest medical publishers will be the publisher of Endocrine Practice and ACE Clinical Case Reports. So really happy to see them coming on board. They're really going to elevate our journal to the next level. We're going to see more digital marketing, social media that accompany our articles with video casts and some podcasts, and we're going to get much more global exposure. In terms of special issues coming up, we will have a special issue on thyroid in March. And in May, around the time of the annual meeting, we're going to have a special issue focused on diabetes and there are going to be two ACE guidelines coming out at the time of the annual meeting. So to generate some excitement at the annual meeting and for the journal, we're going to have an issue devoted to diabetes and diabetes technology. So really looking forward to that. And also we're going to have a new thyroid guideline coming out in March. That's the special thyroid issue. But the journal's doing great. And as you mentioned, I think the COVID world has not hampered publishing. I think a lot of people are still very interested in publishing. I think a lot of people had time to work on their papers and submitted them this summer, so we're happy to see those come to our journal.
1: Awesome. I'm very excited about the motion for the way things are going, and I also wanted to mention that the annual meeting abstract submission period opened right before Thanksgiving, and it closes February 2nd. So for all of you out there that have great case reports, case series, original research, be sure to go to pro.ace.com, P-R-O.ace.com. And uh, you can find the information for abstract submission there. We also have our new ACE learning website, learn.ace.com. We make it easy. So if you go to learn.ace.com, you'll find out about a lot of the different opportunities for online virtual education that are available for all endocrinologists and providers. So then I am very excited about our first guest. Again, when we first started talking about doing a podcast One of the first topics that I think we were really interested in was transgender endocrine care. And you know that I've been very, very slowly developing something here at EVMS to help our transgender community. And I felt pretty good about doing it since one of my good friends was the president of WPATH and very involved in guideline writing. So I have not shied away from reaching out to you and asking you questions. So I'm excited. We have our first interview, our first guest today.
0: I think it's a very timely topic. A, A lot of endocrinologists are getting more comfortable with taking care of transgender patients, and there are a lot of great resources out there. What was really interesting was one of the first WPATH meetings was held in Eastern Virginia Medical School. Is that right, David? You brought that to my attention.
1: EVMS is known for the Jones Institute, which is where the first in vitro baby was born in the United States. Howard and Georgiana Jones had... I don't know if they retired from their positions at Johns Hopkins and sort of post-retirement came to Norfolk and started this amazing, amazing reproductive endocrine institute. And one of the early clinics that they had here was basically a hormone-affirming therapy clinic. I'm sure it was a little different than what we have now because it was a number of years ago. But it's pretty awesome history. There's a lot of history here. Howard Jones was well over 100 when he passed away. And I I remember one of the first talks that I was invited to give when I was junior faculty here was a talk to the Jones Institute and the Jones uh, Reproductive Fellows. And Howard was in the audience. And I was terrified. (laughs) (laughs) He was an amazing guy.
0: So let's bring on our first guest speaker. Dave, will you do the honors?
1: I would be happy to, man. I am very excited about our guest for today. This is a topic that is near and dear to me, taking care of patients at EVMS uh, in Norfolk. And I know uh, for sure for you at Emory, maybe go ahead and introduce our special guest.
0: Yeah, Dave, this is really exciting, and I'm really happy to introduce Dr. Jessica Abramowitz. I met Jessica probably like four years ago, she went to a training course in Florida and she wanted to start up a practice taking care of transgender children, adults. And then subsequently I met her again at in Dallas at UT Southwestern and checked up on how she was doing in terms of her transgender clinic. As I said, we have our special guest. Her name is Dr. Jessica Abramowitz. She's a adult endocrinologist, and she's an assistant professor at UT Southwestern. She heads up the transgender clinic for the division of endocrinology there, and we're so happy that she's here to share in our first podcast. Welcome, Jessica.
2: Hey, Ben and Dave. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast.
0: We're so happy to have you. Could you tell us a little bit more uh, about how things are going in UT Southwestern and how the clinic is going?
2: Sure. Vin, that really took me back to when we first met at that training program in Florida. At that time, I had just started to see a couple of patients. And since that time, my clinic has really grown. And it's been wonderful seeing the growth both from internal referrals and external referrals, and now really have a very busy practice seeing transgender patients.
1: Just I wondered, I didn't have a huge exposure to transgender care in my fellowship, from 2006 to 2009. I think that that's probably changed significantly now for current endocrine fellows. What sorts of advice do you have for endocrinologists that are interested in starting to prescribe hormone therapy for patients, but maybe don't feel that comfortable yet?
2: So I think one key thing that I realized as I started my practice was that probably about 90% of what I do is just being nice. And listening. And I think if you start with those things, you're well on the way to a successful practice. And I tell my trainees and I tell other people who I speak to about my practice that it's very fulfilling in that way, because I think so many of us went into medicine for those reasons. And there's very few things where just being nice and listening will take you so far. In regards to the hormonal therapy, you know, I like to think of it as the same hormones were we are prescribing to our cisgender patients with various conditions as well. In regards to specifics like levels, we know endocrinologists, we love to track our lab levels and regarding following the physical transition and how our patients are feeling. there are really excellent guidelines out there. Specifically, I use the Endocrine Society guidelines, as well as the World Professional Association for Transgender Health guidelines as well. There are also some very good practice guidelines through UCSF. And I think using all of these, a a clinical endocrinologist can get a very good feel for how to practice in regards to the nitty gritty of how to prescribe the hormones and how to adjust levels. But I can't underemphasize the importance of really listening to our patients. In regards to training though, I think one great thing is so many of us now have built this aspect into our training programs. I'm the associate program director for our fellowship at UT Southwestern, and we make sure that all of our fellows have exposure now seeing transgender patients, and that they're comfortable. And I think that in this day and age, any practicing endocrinologist who's coming out of a fellowship program needs to have familiarity and a comfort level with caring for this patient population.
1: Sure. Ben, I know you've been involved in developing guidelines and working with the the transgender community for a long time. What sorts of things do your fellows do at, uh, at Emory?
0: One thing we really offer that's really unique, and I hope more programs will do this, is an OSCE. And the past couple of years, we've had a simulated patient. One was a trans woman one year, one was a trans man another year. And it's really incredible what fellows will then realize what they do and don't know And so many fellows will say, oh yeah, I know how to talk to patients. It's very easy. But then when you present them with a simulated patient, they go, oh, I felt a little uncomfortable asking them about their pronouns or what names they preferred to be called. Or I struggled with using the right terminology. So if a program can do an OSCE, I think that is a great way to do training. We did publish a paper on how to use OSCEs, and Our script is there if people want to use that. But other ways are just uh, providing articles. Jessica mentioned the guidelines. The guidelines are X. There's also lectures at Endocrine University. And usually there's at least a lecture or two at the annual meeting. So fellows should definitely check those out.
2: I will add, it's important also to include our medical students and our internal medicine residents in these clinics as well, because for our medical students, regardless of what fields they're going to go into, they're going to encounter transgender patients. And it's very important that they have a comfort level as well. And for our internal medicine residents, they might not all specialize in endocrinology, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. but they will need to have this training and be comfortable too.
0: Yeah. That's true. I think the earlier the training, the better. And Jessica had a question. One thing I struggle with is the youth to adult transition. In fact, last week, I had a couple people who started hormonal transition in their teen years but in their 20s, I felt like they still didn't really grasp adult care. Could you comment on how you handled this? I know you have a large youth program in Texas, and many of them are now coming to see you. What do you do at the first visit for some of these folks, and what are some advice you have for the rest of us?
2: So my practice really started due to the growth of our large youth clinic, the Genesis Clinic at Children's Medical Center in Dallas is run by my colleague Jimena Lopez, in pediatric endocrinology. And due to that great growth, one big focus of my clinic when we started was these transitions of care from pediatric to adult endocrinology. And I think with that emerging adult age group with any endocrine hormonal condition, there really is a very great need to make that transition well. And that first visit as you pointed out is really key. So one thing that is very important to me is close collaboration with the pediatric endocrinology community and being able to make sure that at that first visit I'm able to review the record. So I have an idea of what hormones in what forms they have used, when they started, whether they underwent pubertal suppression. So we really have a good idea starting. And as the provider, knowing the history and not relying upon the patient to provide it all, especially for that age group, I think is really key. Then you and I put together a great transition of care document through the transitions of care for the endocrine society. And I think that there we have compiled the key documents that are needed in terms of history taking, in terms of patient readiness, in terms of prescriptions. And I think if providers utilize these documents, they can really be best prepared for that initial visit. And again, not to overemphasize the being kind and being patient with the patients who come to see you, because remember, the pediatric home and the pediatric clinics are quite different than our adult clinics, both in terms of who is talking to the patient, all of a sudden, if patients are coming with parents, we're interviewing them directly, we're asking them directly for the history. So it's a very different environment. And it's a sudden jump to independence in their care regimen. So I think having patients with that, and being knowledgeable as a provider can really be a great help.
0: I found those uh, resources really helpful, and I'm embarrassed to say that I have to use them more myself. (laughs) And I've showed them to some patients, and we all have to work at it.
1: Do you have young adults that come with their parents? Just like we have patients with type 1 diabetes that transition from the pediatric clinic to the adult clinic. I would imagine you see some of the same thing.
2: I definitely do in my practice. Patients, I've found, will often come... the parents to the first visit but I think when you provide an affirming environment for someone and they're comfortable in your clinic what I found is the parents often come to that first visit and then they may not be there for the subsequent visits once they realize that it is a safe and affirming environment I have found that although there are even I've seen 18 year olds who come on their own and I think it can be very patient specific and also remember Family dynamics might be very important in these cases as well, and, and whether the parents have consented for treatment if they were treated in earlier adolescence or in their teen years versus patients that turn 18 and are now able to consent on their own for treatment may come by themselves.
1: You all mentioned some great documents. Where can we
2: find those? Uh, the Transitions of Care that's published online. Yes, that, that resources on the Endocrine Society website, yes. there is a link to patient t- tools and resources and specifically transitions of care. There are many conditions that are listed there, type one diabetes, growth hormone deficiency, Turner syndrome, as well as now transgender health. So I really do think that endocrinologists should be familiar with this resource in general because it's a great tool for transitioning patients
1: for sure. You mentioned the the UCSF documents and and things on the WPath website. Those have helped me a lot as I've started seeing patients in my own clinic. One of the things that I found so fascinating and enjoyable in caring for the transgender community, the team is a big team. One of the reasons I like endocrinology is you get to interact with so many different types of medical care providers And I'm finding that in transgender care for sure. Who who are the people that are on your team that you need to make sure are included before you start a clinic and while you're starting to see patients?
2: So I really had the pleasure of starting on my own and then starting to incorporate the different talents into that clinic. I think mental health providers obviously can be a key part of the team. And that's what most people think of initially. But one thing that I think is often neglected is finding a good partner in primary care, whether it's general internal medicine or family medicine, just because we know that this is a population that has been reluctant often to seek care due to bad situations with other providers or finding discrimination. So what I have done is I've vouched allies in general internal medicine and family medicine. And when you can give a patient a name and say, I work with this person, that has been very helpful. Other subspecialties that I do work closely with, as well is plastic surgery, having a good plastic surgeon to refer to, whether it's in the institution or outside of the institution. I also work very closely with a gynecologist. And I think that one is especially important. And to be able to Allay lay patient's fears and let them know that this gynecologist kind of is not going to do anything that's going to be uncomfortable. And we'll see transgender male patients in separate office hours. And someone who has that sensitivity and vouching for that is really key as well. I also work closely with a voice therapist. And I often will let people know in the first visit, I don't know who you're going to want to see or who you're going to want to be part of the team. But let me tell you about the team that I work with here. And then we can coordinate your care with whoever else you need to see.
1: Then you may certainly have comments on this too. I'm noticing a lot of people kind of act on their own in silos for different aspects of care, but it's becoming more and more important to bring everybody together to the same table. Just like you said, Jessica, so that the patient realizes that they have a team taking care of them. I take care of a number of patients with thyroid cancer. And again, one of the things I really enjoy about that is it's a team. So I can let folks know that they're radiation oncologist, their surgeon, even the pathologist and radiologist, everybody, we're all friends, we see each other, we sit down, we used to sit down at a table together. Now we do virtual meetings and those sorts of things. And I think that means a lot to that individual patient. So it's interesting to hear when you first start something, how many people are already caring for transgender patients, but not together in a multidisciplinary way.
0: We um, over time have created a virtual team And I think the key is at least it's virtual in the beginning. And then, I mean, the long-term goal would be to be all together under one roof, but that takes time and resources. And we'd love to be at that point. I'm sure many programs in the country as well, but that does take time. But as long as you have sort of your virtual network, I think that's key. So Jessica, we're partly through our interview here and just wondering for our audience who may or may not be familiar with transgender care what are the basic stuff that an endocrinologist who might not be seeing trans person know? What are the basics that every endocrinologist should know? And then what are sort of the advanced level knowledge that like people who have run a gender clinic should know?
2: In terms of basic knowledge, I think the most important things would be the cultural competency and taking care of this patient population. And I think that any of these guidelines really outline well, the terminology, I think is important. And I think some of the things you alluded to and what you would test in an ASCII, meaning asking the patient if they have a preferred name, asking the patient what pronouns they use, and just getting comfortable with that lingo and opening a visit, hi, what can I call you and what pronouns do you use, and getting very comfortable with that. I think also knowledge about our medical records in general can be very deceiving in terms of patients listed gender, patients listed name, and going into a visit knowing that you may have to back up and re-ask about something. So I would say basic cultural competency and going in with an open mind of how you can help a patient, I think would be very important. I think next level is understanding the different hormone regimens, probably basic knowledge of pros and cons to each and when you may use a specific regimen with a specific patient and probably basic knowledge that most endocrinologists would know just about Monitoring in terms of feminization, masculinization, and hormone levels. And again, all this is really outlined well in these very user friendly guidelines. Higher level knowledge, probably for those with a dedicated gender clinic, would be more specifics about when a regimen is not working, when patients are not satisfied, complications, everyone should know about. But again, that's generally something that most endocrinologists know from using these medications. And then obviously the interdisciplinary team and who to call in and who to refer to at specific points, I think is really important. And I think just going in with the knowledge that, that no patient is the same, no transition is the same and treating patients uniquely and helping them attain their goals is key.
0: Quick follow up to that. What should endocrinologists know about gender non-binary or they now call gender diverse people? Should an endocrinologist be involved in those folks or what should we know?
2: I think endocrinologists do play an important role in treating that population as well. I have seen several patients, as I'm sure you have too, who come and want a certain degree of feminization or a certain degree of masculinization using hormonal therapy or are seeking certain surgical procedures. And I think an endocrinologist is perfectly poised to treat and help these patients. And I think in this patient population, especially, we really have to listen to the patient and see are they satisfied with the changes that they're seeing because it's not all in the labs. It's not all in the levels. We really have to see how our patients see, feel. And I've had patients who just on a very small dose of testosterone already are feeling better or a small amount of estrogen. And I think affirming that and helping these patients is really important and and does fall under the purview of endocrine care.
1: Yeah. And I think one of the things I've been so excited about is just how much I've learned from patients. Maybe it's the sort of thing where there's a good online community, a good community where people discuss different things that they've been through with specifically with respect to hormone therapy. So I've learned a lot from patients and have read a lot online things written by patients, kind of hearing what their experiences have been like and I've liked
2: that. Absolutely. I think that's key and our patients can teach us so much. I think a lot of times these patient run communities can get bad reps, especially, you know, by endocrinologists, but there is so much useful information there and so much comes from our patient's experience. And I think as this field is moving on to the next level where we're starting to answer some of these questions about best regimens and best care, a lot of it is driven by our patients' questions.
1: Well, maybe one more question for you, Jessica, about the older transgender patients, both the patient that's interested in initiating therapy, perhaps at an older age, or the patient that's been on therapy for some time. What what sorts of things do we need to be thinking about and concerned about?
2: So I think it's really important as I said, not to go into any visit with preconceived ideas. And I think especially with the older patients, not to be ageist, obviously. And a lot of times with these older populations, something has changed in their life circumstances and they are ready to transition at an older age. Obviously with older patients, we do want to consider their comorbid conditions. But again, you may have older patients that are well and do not have any contraindications to hormone therapy. But I think knowing well, the hormones, and, and when you may benefit from using one over the other, when you may benefit from differential dosing for an older patient, because as we know, in our geriatric patients, their metabolism medications might be different. But I think going in with that and, uh, you know, ha- keeping safety in mind, obviously, but but remember, we're treating the person and really listening to their story and really keeping in mind closely what their goals of their transition are, I think can be really important to helping and providing an affirmative environment for these patients as well.
0: Well, Jessica, we're almost out of time and really want to thank you for spending time today talking about your clinic and your experience. And I wanted you to have the opportunity to give a final uh, few remarks to our audience.
2: Thank you. I've really enjoyed speaking to both of you about this topic. I hope that I've conveyed my enthusiasm and passion in caring for this patient population, because I really think it's very fulfilling to help people in a way that, like I said, the medical part of it is not super complex, and really just being kind is such a big part of it. So I think for an endocrinologist or someone who's looking to start a practice like this, I would say, go for it. And we've got such great resources to help through various organizations and training programs. And I think also for those of us who are teaching and have trainees at various levels too, it's really empowering to be able to provide this training to future physicians and future endocrinologists as well.
0: Well, Thank you again.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to another great ACE podcast. Join us for another episode at aace.com slash podcasts and help us in our mission to elevate clinical endocrinology. Together, we are ACE.